Okay, good evening everybody and welcome to the CTC Cinema Technology Community Podcast in the pub with me, Mike Bradbury, um, where joining me are fellow cinema technology folk to talk about all things cinema and technology with an emphasis on cinema and technology. Uh, a special warm welcome uh, to our global CT community out there. That um, We have now more than 350 members in over 50 countries. 50 countries, that is. That's incredible. Uh, I'd also like to point out that for those interested, there is a currently a six-month free community membership uh, offer in place. So get on over to the CTC website and jump right in. Uh, that's uh, cinema-technology.com, or cinema uh, not ctc.com. That will probably get you to somewhere like contract tiling consultants or something like that um, <laughs> so anyway now let's get on who will be joining me again this time on the cast uh it is tony purvis tony are you there hello and where do you work amblin partners still there where can we find you on the interwebs uh, you can find me on such places as Twitter, and my handle is at Tony Leone. Is that Leone as in Sergio Leone, or is it a different kind of Leone? Uh, it is not the same Leone. It's got an I at the end instead of an E. Okay, so you don't make spaghetti westerns, no? No, but I do like eating spaghetti. Okie dokie. And we also have uh, Kevin Markwick. Kevin, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. And drinking wine, which is a good thing. Excellent. We're supposed to be in the pub. And we I'm are. from the Picture House Cinema. Uh, that's three words the Picture House, nothing to do with them. Uh, in Uckfield, in East Sussex, in leafy, wonderful uh, East Sussex. Independent cinema, I'm proud of it. Excellent. And where can we find you on the internet uh, apart from the dark web, which we know <laughs> you flourish? Uh, <laughs> Callmebrenda.com is one of my um, one of the sites I do like to appear on. Uh, but other than that, um, <laughs> we're at picturehouseupford.com or you can uh, get me at kevinmarkwick.co.uk. There's all sorts of nonsense on there uh, where you can also uh, look, look, look up the Kevin Markwick show and download my new podcast, Kevin Markwick's Lockdown Time Machine. There you go. I can't believe you're cross-advertising. I am. I have to because I need more listeners. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay we'll allow it and we have a special guest today uh we have brian brian claypool from um from america uh where are you about in america brian well sadly i'm not enjoying any kind of libation with an alcoholic substance i'm still in my morning so i do have my nespresso coffee that i'm enjoying this morning. excellent and where, where where are you from brian as in where do you work and where can we find you on the internet I, I hope that I have a very small uh, social fingerprint. I'm not on any social media except for uh, LinkedIn, which I do check maybe once a quarter, something like that. Uh, a quarter? Yeah, I'm. I'm like I said, I'm. I'm. I'm socially uh, inept. I, I don't. No, have just just fingerprint. just say you just say you're too busy, mate. You're too busy. Right, I'm, I'm too busy, mate. <laughs> Otherwise, Brian.playpool at christydigital.com is where you can most immediately find me. And if you do find things out there on the dark web, just let me know so I can, you know, clean those things up. <laughs> Excellent. Kevin Jaman. Kevin Jaman. Yeah. <laughs> Come and join me at callmebrenda.com. Um, let's get on with what we're going to discuss. We're going to discuss some topics. Um, 
One of them, and the first one, um, we've touched slightly on this when we talked about sound in the past, but uh, let's delve in a little bit more if we can. Um, are cinemas being EQ'd correctly and often enough? I'm not sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure if we have totally um, an expert on this, unless Brian can be. Brian, are you an expert on sound? Uh, in terms of me making sure that I'm not screaming too loud at my kids or they're not too loud in the background during these meetings, yes, very much an expert. Excellent, excellent. That'll do. Yeah. That'll do. So are cinemas being EQ'd correctly and often enough? Um, I suppose you have experience with this, Kevin. Uh, how how often are yours done? I'm a bit disappointed Brian's not an expert since I've got his speakers in my cinema, which is a bit worrying. <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Uh, um, no, uh, probably not. No, would be my uh, general feeling. I think what makes takes, you think that? Well, because it's a fairly time, uh, you know, it takes quite a bit of time to do it properly, which I'm imagining not uh, not everybody wants to invest either the time or the money to use the time to EQ the cinema properly. I'm sure they start off very well, but... Um, Maybe we should EQ them more often than we do. Uh, I do mine at least every four to six months. Um, really? That often? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I just like to make sure that it's right. It doesn't normally need a lot of tweaking, but uh, at least I know that it's right. So maybe I'm a bit, maybe I'm a little uh, over the top. I don't know. What do you think? Can I ask a question on this? Hmm. If the room doesn't change... So in terms of things like furniture isn't ripped out, you're not changing the fabric on the floor or the, the walls and you're not moving the screen about. Should it be, does it need to be EQ'd regularly or should that remain the same? So as long as you're not changing anything integral in the screen and your sound system is, you know, still working top notch and you haven't blown any speakers, surely the EQ mm. wouldn't change. I don't know. I, you I'm would not, think so, I'm wouldn't you? But that's not the case. You would think so, but it does drift. Like anything, it drifts. Yeah, you know? I mean, speakers speakers do have this issue where newer speakers will sound different than older speakers, just as a as a byproduct of age. Just like we sound different as we get older. Uh, so it is. It's good. I don't know what you're talking about, Brian. I've sounded the same my entire life, <laughs> and and never sounded better for sure, Tony. Oh, oh. But it's amazing if, if you go into different auditoriums, uh, and I think it's very good that you're doing it, Kevin, four to six months. Um, remember, mixed stages do it essentially at the beginning of every show or the beginning of every day in some cases. Uh, because oh, that's never slightly know what different, happened, though, isn't it? Yeah, you never know what's happened overnight when somebody's not been around. If the mm. you know, cleaning person has come in with a duster and touched one of the gain on the amplifiers, you, you don't know what you don't know mm. until you check it. And from our experience, we know that audience members in the most part will only come out if it's too loud. They'll very quickly come out and say, hey, it's, it's just too loud. But in most cases, it's not too loud. It's just out of balance or, to, uh, to Mike's earlier point, hasn't been EQ'd correctly. And to that, I mean, we've, we've all met the guy that goes into the auditorium and decides to play his favorite, um, whatever, Justin Bieber CD and decide, I need to tune the auditorium for this. This I know how the CD sounds, so I need to tune the auditorium so the CD sounds exactly the way it sounds in my car, and therefore they're their, their own expert, and they want to retune the auditorium so that Justin Bieber CD, bad example, sorry, you're all drinking, um, 
to how it's not. And, and you have that more pervasive than you would think. So having an expert that knows what they're doing, quote unquote, to give it a, a check every six months to a year is a, is a good idea. When I worked for THX, it was a yearly process that you always had to go in and uh, retune and recertify the auditoriums. And I think in, in my time with THX, I had this exact number at some point, but it's like 1,700 screens, something like that in my five years with THX. And some of them I would go back and tune again as I was supposedly the last person that tuned in before. And you'd oh, be surprised wow. the amount of changes that would happen just within a year. I think that's probably a good point, though, because um, it's easy for me because I've got one site. But actually, it's just as important to have ears in the auditorium, you know, that go in and listen to the to the sound every now and again. Sit in the auditorium, listen to it, and make sure that everything's all right. That's that's all. That's as important as as doing an EQ every so often. I think. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think it's, I think it's really important when people do an EQ that they go and I mean, they generally do an EQ in the auditorium, obviously. Um, but what winds me up a little bit is when people go in and they do an EQ and they just set everything to the to the curve to the X curve, mm. and then it's like, hey, it sounds great now because it's all matching the X curve. And it's like, yeah, but have you heard it? Have you actually <laughs> listened? Have you played something back? And this this is what. This is what bugs me. Is like it's it's like a computer says yes mentality, um, rather than listening to it in a in a subjective way. Um, because yes, you don't want to EQ it totally just by ear. You know, you've got to look at what the computer's telling you as well. But at the same time, you can't only look at what the computer's telling you. Yeah, your ears give you just as much of good data as the machine gives you, but the ears together with the machine can give you the real idea of what's happening in the space. Um, electroacoustically and psychoacoustically. Yeah, my ears are getting older. That's the only problem. You know, <laughs> my high definition hearing is beginning to go. So maybe my ears aren't the and I've got terrible tinnitus. So maybe my ears aren't the most accurate. I don't know. Have you? You got tinnitus? I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, too many Motorhead concerts. <laughs> that's what that was. <laughs> well, there you go. It, it was worth it though, Motorhead. Well, yeah. I was working on them. I wasn't banging my head up and down on them. I was had my ear holes in the speaker. I was on the lighting and things like that. So, so are they are they being done correctly? I mean, you do. Who does yours, um, Kevin? Do you do them in house, or do you get somebody in to do them? No, I get uh, um, Steve Case usually comes in and does it for me from Omnix at the moment. All right. Okay. Um, and was that I, a plug? Was that a plug for Steve? Not at all, Omnix? actually. No, no, because he was at Sound Associates for a long, long, long time before yeah. that. And uh, he and I have been doing this all together for 20 some odd, 20, 25 years. So he knows what I like and I trust him to do it, you know, the way I like it. And then we'll sit there and listen to it together, so so to speak. And, um, you know, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a great advocate to, like you just said, Mike, of sitting in, you know, right. Okay. We'll, we'll get it like it should be now. Let's, let's have a listen to it and see what, I mean, I always think that um, a lot of installations are way too sharp for my ears. Mm. Um, but... well, why do you think that is? I mean, you go into other cinemas and you hear them too sharp. What do you think that could have been? What, what, what do you think well, that, that may be your X curve, is it? I don't know. That they've matched it to the curve or they're younger people that have done it. I don't know. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea why that would be. Brian, do you have any idea? Tony, do you have any idea? 
Um, I would say that sometimes it's due to how they've been mastered and the right. quality of the mix of the actual content itself. That would, um, I mean, if you listen to uh, varying different pieces of content back on the same level um, and on the same EQ, on the same, you know, sound processor, uh, then you'll often find that things that have been more cheaply made and in a rush, such as perhaps some adverts, um, won't necessarily have the same quality as a carefully um, a carefully mixed 5.1 or 7.1 trailer. So I think that probably has something to do with yeah, it as well. That's, that's a very good point, actually. The, uh, the, 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 um, you know, the material we're actually playing can have, and that's why it's fatal to try and alter your sound on this film or that film, because you're going to be chasing your tail all the time. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose, um, I mean, I've, I've probably moaned about this or, or told everyone about this so many times before on probably every single podcast, actually. But, you know, back in the days when we um, showed a program in any of our sites on the Friday morning or the Thursday evening before that program started, uh, we would go into the auditorium and check every single advert, every single trailer and spot check the movie to make sure that the audio level was correct for each individual asset wow that's i mean every every advert that's that's bonkers yeah wow yeah it means i'm really really good on any sort of advert quiz level uh from the last sort of 10 years yeah I'm not, I, I must admit i don't check every advert we run the adverts not as loud as the trailers sorry dcm Berlin, everybody because you can't i mean you just physically can't because you will rip their heads off if you do and trailers go up a bit and then the, which again you can't really run the trailers generally at feature level um because they're too loud and then then feature level so we have three increments really but there's also the job of, of matching the theaters i don't know how you how you do that mike but you know even with my three theaters it took quite a lot of work to make sure that all the eqs matched all three theaters and that the sound levels were all the same so that in your um you know in your um what's the word uh tms that you could confidently set it at seven and and it would sound the same in each theater and with all the theaters you've got that must be a nightmare uh it is it is um it's well nightmare it's it's challenging mm. um because we've also got, you know, you've got Steve Case doing yours, and he's probably going to do all three, whereas we've probably yeah. got, you know, up to 25 different engineers, maybe 30 engineers over the whole of Europe that are all doing the EQs, and they're all doing them slightly different. Do you know what I mean? So because mm. no, no two engineers are the same. Um, so even though you get the training of how to use the equipment and how you how you supposed to EQ everything, you know everything is a little bit subjective, and you know you never really get identical um, a anywhere. Um, it's just trying to get you know ultimately just good sound from that particular auditorium, and they've all got the little quirks, yeah. and they've also all got um, you know different thicknesses of acoustic paneling some have got the speakers with a baffle wall some have not got a baffle wall uh, some are really large rooms some are really small um, so you've got all of these um, you know environmental things to consider uh, mm. which you know obviously is the reason why you have to EQ them in the first place um, so you know to, to try and compensate for that we're battling. I've got three screens in there, and I've got JBL in one, Christie in one, and QSC in another. So mm. I'm getting three slightly different versions. Um, yeah, and they'll all have their individual quirks, and they'll all have a little, you know, idiosyncrasies. Um, mm. And you could pro now you could probably tell 
you know, if you were blindfolded, if you went into one, which one was which by how they sound. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, uh, unless I went into one particular room where I know how exactly how it sounds in my local cinema, uh, I wouldn't probably be able to tell you. Yeah, but, Mike, an interesting comment earlier, or I think it was you, maybe it was Tony, um, how we are kind of getting conditioned to where people are just being trained to, as soon as you see the green button on the computer display, it must mean everything is okay. But there is no substitute for a, a very well-trained and experienced human ear that can actually go into these environments and confirm that the green button is actually the, uh, the, the correct shade of green, shall we say. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, just just you know, really would advise anyone who's um, in charge of engineers, you know, really do make sure they get on those Dolby courses or sound courses because there are ways that you need to adjust the sound in the software that are not necessarily, you know, straightforward. And there's a way of getting around certain sound problems uh, if you really can work your way around the software. You really do need to know how to do it. Um, mm. you know, I wouldn't advise just, you know, having a go because you can really mess things up. Uh, I miss so, the old um, analog EQing from the CP65. Mm. Where you could you could literally just get the you know plug it in and play with the with, with the different um, you know uh, different uh, EQing bands. You could really get it sounding wonderful there. It's more difficult to do that now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I used to love running those little loops through my uh, audio reader. <laughs> mm. what, what were they called? I got, oh gosh. Oh, uh, oh, blimey. I don't They're know. I, I had a, we had um, CP 550s, I think. 500, probably. 500, yeah, you're right. Then it was 600. With little EQ cars, and you had the Jiffy Pop, Jiffy, Jiffy Test Reel, which was always a good thing to play at the end just to make sure your sideways sweeps and things weren't rattling uh, or kicking out components of the system. Uh, but you're right, just taking a little bit of time and looking through those Dolby courses and participating in them, and even looking into the new SMPTE standards mm -hmm. that have been revised recently. I think it's what is it, ST2095 and um, some other new documents just to, to get a little bit of an education on the status of things and good practices. I mean, isn't there also, um, I'm sorry if I'm opening a can of worms here, um, but isn't there also an argument that the X-curve isn't the curve that we should be aiming for? Uh, that is a big can of worms. That's like opening Pandora's box. I, I think the X-curve continues to do a lot of good things for the industry, but there is a bit of an over-reliance on it as well, getting into the previous conversations about there's no substitute for the human ear going in to see how things are actually performing in the auditorium after you do your your EQ. And some of these are referred to in the 2095 documents. But when you mention about, you know, some content having different um, pre-emphasis curves being burned into them, what I've found is that films that are mixed in smaller rooms relative to the bigger rooms of exhibition is where you'll see some of those disparities in terms of how the reference curve is used in the... Uh, and the mastering of the content. Yeah, I think from my experience um, with, with people that I've worked with previously who, you know, are the geniuses of post-production, um, they generally do it in a smaller room, but they make sure that it plays back correctly in a big room. So they cover all bases. And I, I would like to think that most people do that also. 
So, Tony, do you get involved with the sound recording uh, at the no. post-production stage, or is it more supervisory? Or what? No, that's definitely, you know, post-production supervisor and then the, the post-production team itself. The, that knowledge is beyond my comprehension. Um, you know, I would love to, to learn more about it. I'd love to be more involved. Um, but, yeah, I'll leave that with the experts for now. So the only time I really get um, involved in that is when, uh, we have a territory that perhaps um, wants to dub their own trailer, um, and then I just help facilitate get that, you know, getting those stems over to post production, who will then sign off on it. You know, they still listen to it into in, in a big, in a big room on the big stage uh, to make sure that that trailer also sounds as perfect as the original version, um, which I find absolutely fascinating. I think it's wonderful that you know you're maintaining standards all the way through the process. I think it's great. Um, but no, to answer your question directly, I, I'm not involved in that yet. Right. Brian, a question for you. Do you believe um, ribbon drivers uh, are better, worse, the same but different? Or what? what's, your, what's your thoughts on ribbon drivers? Well, ribbon drivers has a place in technology lore of being... Um, good for historically different applications other than cinema. The whole reason Christie took ribbon drivers into the cinema market was because of the different power levels that our ribbon drivers are capable of um, producing relative to historical ribbon drivers that are on the market. So the technology and the material science that went into the ribbon drivers that we use in Vivadio when mounted together in a line array type, type of circumstance is supposed to allow the auditorium to have much better coverage, much smoother coverage than a, than a coaxial or a horn-loaded system, but still be able to provide that um, strength of frequency mix that you need throughout the auditorium instead of falling off over 12K, the further off that you get from the, the, the center of the horn. The line array that we use the ribbon drivers in allow a much more smooth coverage of the frequency area over a more uniform area of the auditorium. Um, that's the intent of how the speakers are supposed to be used together with the ribbon drivers um, and the crossovers and the other portions of uh, the technology. But as you alluded to earlier, you can have the best technology in the world, but if it's not tuned, EQ'd, set up uh, for headroom and everything else correctly, then it doesn't really matter what the end technology is. It's not going to sound as good as it's supposed to be. So um, that's the reason why we moved to ribbon driver, but still it's the implementation, the tuning, the maintenance, and the upkeep of the system to make it uh, really produce its work. I would agree. I would I'd, um, uh, chime in there because I absolutely love the Vive speakers, um, but they took a while to tune to the room correctly. It took, it was, it was actually, re, you know, I wouldn't say difficult, but the two things I noticed about them was that top end that you have to be really, really careful about. And secondly, they are the most revealing speaker I've ever heard in a cinema. And revealing is not a word you normally associate with cinema sound. But I could hear the ribboning of some of the cheap soundtracks that were on there that I'd never heard before. It was quite extraordinary. I think they're, they're, they're revealing in a way, I, like I say, I've never heard a cinema speaker sound. Can I quickly ask another question, just interjecting on my uh, lack of knowledge on this subject and mm. probably for some of our listeners. Can we please explain what a ribbon driver is? Ah, Brian. <laughs> uh, it's probably better to give you with pictures than it is to try to describe it. But you have um, a ribbon driver is 
how can I explain it? It's, it's exactly the way it sounds. You have two different types of materials that are sandwiched together in between different um, conductors so that when they vibrate to reduce to, to produce a frequency, it comes out of the ribbon driver in a very specific directional spread, right? And by doing that in a line array, you can have this very specific directional spread of each ribbon, which is a vertical ribbon in our case, and a line array. So you put these vertical ribbons next to other vertical ribbons, and that uniform coverage and fidelity is supposed to be able to cover the auditorium in a, in a more uniform manner. But it's basically two, two layers of a, of a material. It's like an aluminum piece of material, but it's not aluminum. And that those materials vibrate against each other and produce the frequencies that you hear. That's super cool. But they don't sound like horns. That's the thing. They sound quite different to horns, at least to my ears. They don't whack, 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 whack like a, like a horn-loaded speaker does. Yeah, I find them to be really efficient. Mm. Um, yeah. And so, so therefore, the question is for Brian, I suppose, is, you know, if I'm, in, if I'm a sound engineer or I'm just an engineer who EQs auditoriums as well, and I go in um, and I don't know what's behind the screen, whether it's ribbon drivers or, or tweeters or, or what, um, should I know beforehand that I'm dealing with a ribbon driver, uh, or does it not matter? You know, from my, my experience, I've found that, you know, they are more efficient and you do need to take them into consideration on the EQ, but I'm just curious as to your view. I think you got to do a little bit of both, both on the original installation. So, you know, the technology that you're dealing with. And again, this is where the, the ear comes in to help you condition and understand what you need to accommodate. But also on the maintenance area as well, because what, what I've found is that on these, the historical problem with ribbon drivers is that they weren't really made for uh, high power type of environments like, like a cinema. They were more made for near field environments. Um, but the idea is putting these things in a line array, you can create those high power conditions with a group of these ribbon drivers put into a line array. Now, what I've found is after you do the initial tuning of the auditorium, um, the reflex of the ribbon drivers will change very minutely and going in after say four to six months to make sure you, you specifically look at those high end frequencies to make sure that that's tuned out the way that you need them to be in a reverberant environment of a cinema is something that I would say you'd need to be uh, aware of. So if you have specifically the crispy V audio technology in the theater, they are very revealing, but especially in the first year or so of the installation, go back in and look to make sure that things are still staying on track from where you initially installed it and that you're happy with. So um, next topic, I think we've gonna done EQs uh, as much as we can uh, without getting into slides uh, and presentations and whatnot uh, for Tony and the ribbon drivers. Mm -hmm. um, no, it's all right, Tony. Um, we'll, sh we'll, we'll educate you, we'll show you. Um, so next one is digital believe it or not, what would we do differently if we could do it all again? So what have we learned? What have we, uh, what have we gone? Oh God, if only we'd have known this then. Uh, um, I, I'm what? happy to jump in here with controversy already. Okay. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I think that largely more projectionists should have kept their jobs. Um, yep which will upset some I'm sure but it'll probably cause some cheers from others um I think there was like when digital came in there was like this assumption that um anyone could do it 
Um, and it goes back to actually what we were just saying about the audio with, you know, oh, well, if computer says it's good and it's green, then away we go. And to a certain extent, I suppose digital cinema is a bit like that. But I feel like you also have to have your heart in it um, and you need to want everything to look spectacular and you want those presentation standards to be high. And I feel like from my experience and, and you know, from talking to people over the last 12, 13 years, um, I, I think that a lot of people felt uh, hard done by, by, you know, not having the opportunity or by not being able to continue in, in their career due to the tech, technological change or whether it might have been a financial reason or whatnot um but the but these people are the people that were in the job for you know upwards of 30 years sometimes um and they really understood the theatrics that are also required when you present a film it's not just a case of ingesting um and pressing play it's you know it's everything else it's the pageant lighting it's the audio levels it's making sure that everything looks and sounds wonderful um and, and, you know, also with the switch to digital, I suppose, a lot of the basics remain the same. You've got a light source, uh, you're projecting through a lens and it hits the screen. So although a lot of people perhaps didn't have the most uh, modern view of the world in terms of uh, computer literacy and whatnot, the, the, the fundamentals were, were still the same. Um, and I just, I just feel like we could have, you know, kept a few of the, the old guard which I think would have um, meant that perhaps our presentation standards were a little bit higher in the beginning and, and filtered through in a, in a positive way hmm. to the next generation. I don't disagree with that. I think you're probably about right, uh, Tony. Yeah. But, you know, I guess it's economies, isn't it, of scale? It's easy for me to keep a projectionist because we're small. Maybe it's less difficult to justify to the board of the very big corporation of America. I don't know. There was also a um, there was also a lot of reluctance from, I think probably quite a large proportion of the old guard. Um, you know, this is probably going to upset some people too. But I think there was like some reluctance for the change uh, because, to be honest, if you know something perfectly well, then change can be quite scary, um, especially if you if you don't think you're up to the challenge or you you think that you're going to be outsmarted by someone else. Yeah, it was scary. It was scary. It's very scary. You know, I mean, I I always say that. Um, I started showing films when I was 15 years old, 15, 16 years old. And um, I could keep your show going with my left foot and some duct tape, you know. Um, but a black box that won't switch on is a black box that won't switch on. My 40 years of experience mean absolutely nothing. I would say the part of the 40 years of experience was don't panic. <laughs> that was, uh, that's what I learned the most. It's like, well. And that's quite be ironic because yeah. then everyone panicked. Yeah. Well, you know, when I, under the very, the, 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 the two short years I worked for a circuit, if anything went wrong with the film, you could hear the, ah, 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 of the buzzing phone calling you going, the film's not on. I know I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying, don't make me answer the phone while I'm trying to fix the film. Um, and I learned very quickly that just to ignore everyone else and um, like they say in The Martian or any other NASA-based film, work the problem, people, work the problem. <laughs> That's exactly what my chief, one of the first things my first chief ever told me. He was like, if that phone rings and you're already dealing with the problem, ignore the phone. If yeah. you're that worried about it, <laughs> the general manager has access to the booth and will come in and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. But Tony, are you saying that if we would have kept 
projectionists, we would be showing films on screen now better? Um, I think that there is a chance we would have, but I certainly think in the initial period where we went from, because let's be honest, it happened overnight um, for a lot of people. Um, So I think that initial changeover would have been smoother. That initial transition would have been smoother Mm -hmm. uh, because you would have had the brains of the old school projectionists who knew how everything should look and should sound. But then you also had, you know, the the new um, apprentices, if you like, who had the technological knowledge of this, uh, this new equipment and together you know, this is starting to sound like an 80s power ballad, but together they would have been so much stronger <laughs> and everything would have looked fantastic. Um, it's just, I think it's just because in the areas in which I worked and, and the people that I've spoken to since, um, it all just seemed a bit like a, a, a harsh cut as opposed to a transition. I think that depended on where you were. I think that depended what country you're in as well, because some Mm. countries would have had unions uh, and it would have been a question of, you know, you either need us or you don't. Um, And you can't need us just a little bit less. And I think there was an element of, well, you know, I mean, I don't know the details, but I know some countries were, were a question of, you know, the union said you either need us or you don't. And if you don't need us, then we need to arrange a deal for, for them so that they can sabotage yeah. i've definitely spoken to to some of those people in those various countries as well about this so so yeah you're, you're probably right um but yeah, i just think it's a massive shame yeah yeah i mean uh, to be honest in my experience there was there was a transition um you know there wasn't an overnight um for lack of a better term cull um the, the there were there was a it was a gradual um process um but which took which was over years um but you know if if you're asking me do i think would be better if we had all of the projectionists that we always had then i I think we yeah we probably would but frankly if i'm really honest and having been a projectionist for you know well i always consider myself a projectionist but you know I, i think the job would have been incredibly boring um, because you would have been most of the time it works fine um, mm. on its own and you're only really there to kind of make sure if something goes wrong and you, you're the guy who knew who to ring. I think that's the, yeah, that's the problem we had was expanding out the job. You know, my projectionist was terrified by the whole thing and didn't make himself sort of indispensable. He didn't He didn't open up to, you know, maybe... You, there's other things you could be doing as well as just being a project, not just but 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 being a projectionist, and maybe there were a lot of the old school that didn't didn't want to do that, but you know it just is now the way it is, unfortunately. Mm, there was a lot of old school that weren't really old school either, though. No, well, you know, that's they were true. very they were very very new school, um, and you know they would uh, take to digital like a duck to water, and they did understand it, and they did want to know more. And usually those people went on to be, you know, either technical managers themselves or engineers. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Actually, so, yeah. you know, it's, you know, and, and they're not, they, they understood that I don't want to be sat in one cinema all day, every day being bored. I want to get out there and be an engineer and, you know, fix multiple cinemas rather than one. On um, this point, 
um, my, the first digital projector that I ever got to work on uh, was a Christie, which brings brings us to Brian, actually, doesn't it? Well, it was good for, for Christie to be one of the first ones out there with product because we were able to learn a lot. Uh, but in those days, a lot of the, the standards, quote unquote, were really being defined by uh, TI to all three OEMs. So as a, a tactical way to answer your question, Mike, about what things would we like to have done at least a, a little bit differently. Well, I would have loved to have seen the, the deployments be slowed down enough to the, where there was some standards and things like SMS to TMS um, standards, because I don't know about you guys, but that continues to cause a lot of grief because all the systems interact in, in different ways with different APIs, with different ways to communicate certain pieces of data. Um, that's still to this day a, a challenge moving forward. Um, other tactical things is things like lens mounts. I mean, you can't have a crispy lens work in a Barco projector or an NAC or a Sony, right? It used to be in 35 millimeter. You had a flat lens and an anamorphic lens. Yeah. Around the glass, but otherwise it was the same lens. So, so lens like, interoperability. Yeah, exactly. More interoperability. And to Tony's point, the lack of training and the fact that we didn't have projectionists out there anymore to have Thursday night previews with their friends and and that's the way a lot of us grew up as projectionists, right? That was part of our culture and the way that we grew up. And and now we're actually still a part of this business and it's a meaningful part of our everyday lives. I'm worried about the next generation of talent, but that's not, that doesn't have that uh, environment to culture this, you know, technology of movie theatrical exhibition, the way that, that we had growing up. And, um, and it's, a, it's effect on the talent pool as we get into the next generation. So we need to find better ways to engage and nurture that next generation of talent. I think you're absolutely right, Brian. I think, you know, down to understanding of things like aspect ratios and stuff that aren't really being taught to people, I don't think, in a meaningful way, are they? I think they are. Um, yeah? yeah, I think so. And I think that actually, maybe this is an area where home entertainment is doing the theatrical business a favor because um, aspect ratio is becoming more important in home entertainment world. So I think for like people that are watching films at home and maybe the kids um, and people in schools and stuff. Um, I don't know. Just, there's no deep knowledge of why they are the shape they are. That's what I mean. Maybe it's irrelevant. But do, do you need the deep knowledge? No, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe you don't. Maybe I'm um, just being drunk and nostalgic. But Context is always part of the knowledge that you earn. Right. Yeah. It's not yeah. just enough to know what things are, but why things are. And it, it, yeah. context helps that. There's a reason why 185 is 185. There's a good reason for it. And there's a reason why scope is scope and why, you know, all these things. But I guess even that's not that. 177 is 177. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I feel like people, um, the, the next generation um, who go into this industry are, are, are going to be film lippers, obviously. Well, I'd hope so. Um, um, so, so they're going to at least know why their directors of choice are choosing these aspect ratios, and surely that's all that really yeah, matters yeah, at enough. that point. Unless you really are interested in the history of cinema, in which case, um, we can all direct them to some very good books. Don't miss humping cans up and down the stairs on a Thursday night. I you really know what don't. I do? I used to have such <laughs> wonderful arm muscles, and now I don't have any. And yeah. <laughs> I was so strong, and I didn't have to go to the gym. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, everybody always romanticizes about projection, and yeah. they tend to forget all of those Thursday nights yeah. 
changing the adverts on a Thursday night or a Friday morning. See, these are the days that I loved. I loved well, those yeah, jobs. I, I, I still loved it. I loved those jobs. Yeah, I loved it, but it was it was it was grueling and it was time consuming and very very sweaty. <laughs> Again, I, I was okay with that. Um, it, it was the it was the quiet days that I didn't like. I always used to ask for the Thursday, the the Wednesdays and Thursdays were my favourite shifts. Um, really? And then yeah, and then I loved late nights. Used to love doing the late night shifts. They were great. Well, I started when I started showing films. Um, it was uh, Sunday change. So uh, we had to make the film up on a Sunday bloody morning. And um, if the film didn't turn up on a Sunday morning, you were really, you were really screwed because there was no one to answer the phone saying, where's my film? And drag yourself out of bed after a skinful on Saturday night to make up the film. There was no fun in that, don't you? Hmm. Brian, you might know this. Um, should we um, have allowed and should we now allow or not uh, Keystone Correction. Uh, I, I think there are certain installations where you don't have a choice but to allow a certain amount of Keystone Correction uh, to be brought in. And the difference between image processing that was available you know, 20 years ago and what we have available now um, is a, a world of difference, right? I mean, we all know what the advances have been and just general processing capability. Well, image processing is not all that much dissimilar. Uh, so yeah, I think you can do things like uh, a keystone correction or other image distortion correction much better now than we could have 20 years ago with the technology that we had. Can I ask the question, why would we be against image, uh, a keystone correction? Why would we be? Uh, from my from my understanding, it was a DCI thing that didn't allow keystone correction, and I I never really inquired why. I just assumed because it was an area that if if you uh, messed about with it too much, you could end up really distorting the image. And that's why they have in the spec that says a noticeable or objectionable uh, artifact, some language like that. And mm. I don't have the whole spec in front of me, like I, of course I normally always have a paste tool on my wall next to me, right? Um, <laughs> But there's language like that. So it was the expectation that if you just keep square pixels in there without any uh, uh, scaling or otherwise, you'll avoid interpolation errors or other quantization errors that may result into questionable artifacts. But again, you can do things now with the processing that's, that's available that we couldn't do then. So I think it's a much less of a concern now. Yeah, but there was a, there was a key, in any keystone correction, you're, you're sacrificing pixels as well, aren't you? Well, that was going to be my question, yeah. Because you're, yeah, you're, you're, effectively, the, you're yeah. effectively rescaling within the image, aren't you? Mm. Are we reducing resolution by keystoning? Uh, keystone, uh, great. Mm. Yeah, from the very pluralistic standpoint, you are decreasing the effective resolution on screen, but it still comes down mm. to can you do it in a way where it's not observable? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that was the problem, though, is the fact that if you allow it on all projectors in, in any situation... Um, that you could end up really compromising things, uh, and you could potentially start installing projectors at really oblique angles, um, and just say, "Oh, we can just keystone correct it," and before you know, you've cut right into the image. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm, mean, and I don't, I don't know. I wasn't obviously there when they were discussing these things. I just assumed it was that because I noticed that obviously on every projector you can buy in the land now, that's not. DCI, you can get keystone correction on it, except uh, a DCI projector. 
but the the instructions will tell you that it reduces resolution if you use the keystone correction yeah mm. but i'll tell you there's there's one instance that we were lobbying for in the beginning of this which was the use of anamorphic lenses right because if you uh. take pci spec and scope uh you're, you're chopping off 23 percent of the light that comes off those devices and onto the screen so my argument was always well, yes, you're going to increase um, some artifacts as a result of using an anamorphic lens, but the audience ain't going to see it. And the fact that you're going to be decreasing light by 20 some percent, that's mm -hmm. something the audience is probably going to see and find more objectionable uh, than using anamorphic lenses on the scope format to be able to increase the efficiency and the brightness of the systems. But at the end, we didn't use them. So what was the reason to not use anamorphic lenses? Was it because they wouldn't be used properly or that they would be too complicated to install? Well, on the commercial side, there was the cost of the anamorphics, but then on the, uh, uh, the DCI spec side, there was the square pixels issue, right? right. You didn't want the anamorphics to be used because it might uh, increase some visible artifacts as a result of the image scaling. Right, because basically all we're doing is zooming up for scope, isn't it? That's all we're doing now. It's not proper scope. It looks proper scope, but it's not. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, we went touched on in the last podcast with the ratios, but it touches on, you know, why people maybe prefer the two to one ratio now sometimes because you can get, it's not quite scope, but it's wider than flat and you can get more pixels. Yeah, but there's the, 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 the if you really want to get really arty about it, is the slight aberration introduced by the anamorphic lens actually makes it look lovely. Mm. <laughs> And makes it look more filmy. In fact, they filmmakers use old anamorphic lenses to get that look. Yeah, they do because they like the way how the lights yeah. also give yeah. them that kind of oval shape. Yep, yep. As well, yeah. Mm. I must have read the same or listened to the same audio commentaries as you. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I know filmmakers, and they and they they use anamorphic. And I've I've often said to them, well, why do you, why do you want to use an anamorphic lens? You don't need to use it. Because we're not we we in the cinema are not using an anamorphic lens. We're just going to blow your, you know, um, two, three, five, or whatever picture up to you know. It's just going to be in a in a container, and we're going to blow it up. You're not going to get the effect in the cinema, I'm afraid. But no, still they use them. <laughs> yeah, but it has impacted how we build cinemas now, right? I mean, Mike, I don't yeah. know if this is true in your circuit, but um, in other circuits, we used to kind of go off of the standard uh, fixed height scenario where scope was the widest image. Uh, but because of digital, it's completely reversed now. So we try to move forward in new installations where we have uh, fixed width and variable height. That's the yeah. Uh, the yeah that's that. That is absolutely. We talked about this in the last podcast, but that that is absolutely um, the case in many cinema chains, including ours. I mean, we don't always we don't have a set rule. Um, depends on the geometry and the ceiling height and things like that. Um, but yes. Uh, it, de digital cinema uh, definitely does impact on the kind of, well, the screen shape that you're putting in your auditorium now, without a doubt, because, you know, there's, there's various reasons, not just because of that, but, you know, you don't want to zoom out. You don't want to, when you do zoom out for scope, it means that you're going, you know, less bright uh, or you're, comp you, you, you're compensating, uh, and sorry, compromising the, the light uh, for scope where you don't want to in anything you want kind of, exactly the same or a bit more light um so it, it definitely impacts on it without a shadow of a doubt uh it does for me anyway i don't know i'm a miserable bugger i like scope to be wider than wide i absolutely agree
Yeah. How does you being a miserable bugger tie into this exactly? Perfect world. That is absolutely the case. It should always go wider because it's you know it's a little bit of a exciting buzz when the film when the film comes on and it goes wider. It's definitely what you should do, mm. but practically and pixels wise and likewise, it doesn't work uh, very well um, in mass. Uh, so it's mm. the, it's not we yeah it is it is. Um, but it's it's how a lot of people are doing it now. So should we have um, waited for Simpty DCPs, um, or sh- or Ooh. did we just have to go with Interop? Um, you know, should that should we have just you know? I wish we'd have had Simpty DCPs from the start rather than Interop, or was it not really a problem? Uh, would we have had ten years without digital cinema though? In that point. Oh. No, well, yeah, we would probably, but what I'm saying is, if we'd have had Simpty DCPs from day one, would that have helped us in any way? Surely, Simpty DCPs have learned from interrupt DCPs. Good point. As a as a poison, a poison. I suddenly came from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> as a poison at the <laughs> at the pointy end, I can see practically no difference. What is the difference? Explain to me. Oh, there's many differences. No, no, but from a grunt putting a thing into a thing and then showing it on the screen, what's the difference? None. Uh, the main difference is just flexibility and incorporation of different um, types of data that traditionally weren't conceived of within Interop. So would we hmm. would we have been better off waiting? Uh, no. I don't I uh, I don't know, Elijah. That's a tough one. I need to drink more to answer that question. <laughs> I'd like to look at it as an evolution, right? In- Interop serves a purpose, and that's great. Uh, but now we found that we need more uh, flexibility. So for things like, you know, uh, object-based sound, we can't be restricted to the Interop standards. Um, okay. And then things like subtitling come into play, and having more accessible content and Interop doesn't necessarily accommodate for that. So I think that Interop did well and it will continue to do well. Uh, but, you you know, from an international distribution point of view, I can uh, start to see a lot more territories um, asking whether DCPs are going to be Simpty um, because it allows them to do a little bit more. Mm. At the pointy end, it made no difference to us whatsoever. No, I can't say it's made a whole big difference no, to us either, no, to be honest. No, but um, no. I'm wondering. I was just wondering, really, whether it had had any effect on distribution, more than which Tony has answered. So. Well, I, I think from a business standpoint, we wouldn't have been able to wait for it, so we had we had to proceed with Interop. So, anything else that we would do differently? Um, we've talked about uh, projection. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, from my standpoint, yes, I agree. We should have somebody at a cinema uh, that knows how everything works, um, and I think most most people appreciate that and and know that, and they want to try to ensure that happens. Um, but whether we need, you know, projectionists on the same way that we had in the thirty five mil days, I'm not so sure. I think it would be quite a boring job. Mm. On the whole, I just I quite uh, quickly just like to defend my point there. Um, I didn't necessarily mean that that would be the only job that they did. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a fair you point. Know, I, I think that we uptrained a lot of 
general managers and managers to become projectionists, whereby actually maybe it would have been sensible if if the other participants were amenable to the idea to have projectionists learn the management role. And I know that was a yeah, big sticking I, I, point right. with a lot of people. You know, I, I mean, one of the things, because I do, you know, we have school kids come in and I give them a talk about this, that and the other. And um, one of the things we, we I always say to them is that actually the, the biggest uh that the, the digital switch that we've just had over the last few years was the most seismic change that the cinema exhibition industry has seen since the coming of sound there was nothing there's been i mean we've had various you know scope came in and 70 mil and all this kind of thing but we needed to change the entire industry from silent to sound and we had to change the entire industry from um you know, 35 to digital. And actually, I think we did it remarkably well when under the circumstances, you know, and, and people forget. I mean, the, the audience doesn't care ultimately how the film is being shown. But for us, it was it was a massive, difficult upheaval to go through. It really was. It was really I, sad. I, yeah, well, it may be. But I think we cope with it actually pretty well, to be honest. I'm not so sure it was. It, it was it was bittersweet. Mm. Um, rather than sad. I mean, yes, I can understand. There, there was definitely a sad element of it because there's always a, a passing on, um, you know. But it, it, it's there's a lot of really good things about digital that we never had in 35 mil. I completely agree with you. Just like personally, for me, it was quite sad because yeah. I, I'd started whilst I was at university and um, I just about got the hang of it. And then it mm. went away, and I loved mm. it. But how far back do you want to go? Because you know, I you know, I could say, well, I miss changeovers. Mm. You know, no one misses changeovers. Change yeah, well, there you go. I mean, you know, I haven't taken a changeover since the early eighties. What about carbon arcs? I learned on carbon arcs for God's sake. Yeah, I don't miss carbon arcs. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody miss those? I don't know. I don't miss carbon arcs. Do we wish we hadn't bought any series ones? Uh, well, those things just keep trucking. I, it's just amazing. Every time I look into the install database of how many Series 1 projectors are still out there, just they're just cranking away, right? Yeah, they are. They are. It's, it's, it's weird that we're already talking about this with digital cinema because it's supposedly still very new. But it, we, we're already saying they don't build them like they used to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's not that new. It's not. It's over 10 years. Yeah, I know. That's not new. Yeah, new? The truth is the design of those things are actually 20 years old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but time is new. but a construct. Let's talk to Mr. Nolan about that. My yeah. two 001s were 60 years old when I got rid of them. They still sounded like sewing machines. Well, that's the thing, so... isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the good old, the good old uh, Vic fives that we had. They run forever. Or the century as they were in the, in the US, but they run forever. Yeah, that's what bugs me when I go to some of the um, some of the cinema conventions. Is when you say, "Well, when your projector breaks, you got to buy a new one." It's like, "Well, mm. what do you mean? <laughs> what what's going to break before I buy a new one? Before I have to? Oh, you know what? Let's mm. just throw it away and buy a new one." Yeah. Do you mean well, it's... that's the world we live in, isn't it? We are, you know. Yeah, but we don't. We can't possibly just no. throw a projector away and buy a new one. We just can't. It's 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 like. You, you really have to say, okay, what's broke about it? And I'll replace that part and then it'll get back up and run. Well, I suppose we need to learn about how we can uh, renovate our Series 1's projectors. Yeah, I mean, even the Series 2's. I mean, it's it's not just a Series 1 
concern. I, I get, you know, well, you know, they don't build the components anymore and we can't, we've stockpiled a few and blah, 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 blah. But there's a mentality of people that don't operate projectors and don't maintain them of when it breaks, you just buy a new one. And I, I can't do that. You can't do that. Business. You just can't do that. It, it yeah. makes me laugh. It makes me smile sometimes. Hey, maybe it'll be more important now where, you know, um, cinema or, or exhibitors are really strapped for cash, um, especially, you know, after this weird situation that we're currently going through. People are not going to be able to, you know, you've just said that we can't replace projectors when they break anyway, but that's going to be even more true now when people are, running on a, a limited income absolutely i mean trust me you know nobody wants to spend money on anything unless they have to <laughs> do you know what I mean they've, they've they've got is it working is it fine is it absolutely fine fine i don't want to replace it for the sake of it um you know unless it's in some huge prestige cinema uh where you absolutely must be the very latest and greatest and offer the best then fair enough but if you're running a standard cinema then you don't, you don't want to, I mean, what do you think, Kevin? I mean, I, I wouldn't want to replace equipment if I didn't have to. No, I'm, I'm not necessarily the best person to ask because I like things that are shiny and new. And uh, I, I quite often want the latest thing. But, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. I we could to... ask Brian, though, couldn't we? Yeah. And I just don't know. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I, I, made a, I made an interesting commercial decision uh, I've been getting on for two years ago now uh, that has now rendered my projectors useless. <laughs> so I am going to be in the market for new ones, Brian. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. And of course, we're here every opportunity to provide the assistance that the exhibition partners are looking for. Yeah. Thanks, Sonny. Look, after the whole COVID thing settles down and business is back up and running again, uh, you're all right. People are not going to be rushing out and saying, here, I want to write a check for a bunch of whole new gear. Uh, mm. they're going to want to make sure that what they have will continue to draw people onto the seats for as long as possible without having to go out and spend a whole bunch of money on brand new gear. Um, and my challenge as a manufacturer is to make sure that we have the ability to make those current investments last as long as they possibly can with the realization of the new business environment that we're going to be in. I ran all my projectors on Saturday, um, and it's so depressing going around the theatre and just all the you know empty auditoriums, listening to the sound and watching the picture. It's heartbreaking, it really is. Anyway, another thing. <laughs> okay, we're going on to the next topic now. Anyway, oh, yeah. so should we rent light or buy it? Oh, uh, do you know what I mean? Does everybody no. know what I mean? No. Nope. Why don't you clarify for us? Uh, okay. Uh, well, apparently, uh, Brian might know a little about this. Maybe he doesn't. Uh, keep saying that. Sorry, Brian. Um, but uh, some projection manufacturers, if not all, are saying that, you know, if you want to replace the projection system, then we can replace the projector. Uh, but we can offer a situation whereby, you know, you don't know how long the laser projector is going to last. And we get we can say, OK, don't worry about the laser side. We'll guarantee it. The laser side is us. You pay, I don't know, you might pay a little bit less for the projector, but you pay us a, a, a weekly, monthly, annual fee for the light element of it. And we'll just take care of that light um, you know, over time for a fee rather than you have to worry about, you know, when is, how long is the light going to last? Uh, and I mean, that's broadly, uh, there's, there's a lot more detail to it, but that's broadly what some projector manufacturers are saying. 
Uh, and I thought it was quite an interesting topic to mm. discuss because it's obviously completely different kind of model to what we're all used to in the cinemas because uh, we would just put a set of lamp in and you pay for it, you put it on, it lasts a certain amount of hours, you replace it and life moves on. Uh, so what, what's your thoughts on that? Is it, does it sound like a good thing, a not good thing, an interesting thing? What do you think? There's a couple of things that I would address with this. One is that we know that there are going to be customers that will have the preference to not uh, CapEx 100% of the purchase of new kit. And if there is a financial model for a certain percentage of the new kit to be financed through a, a lease out or an other financing term, that's, that's fine. We can offer that solution for those that need it. Uh, then it gets into the details of, okay, well, what, what's the lease rate? What's the return on the investment after the lease term is over? Um, and, and many exhibitors can go out and get better commercial terms through uh, commercial lending facilities to just buy the kit and have that third-party leasing company pay the manufacturer than what the manufacturer can offer. So there's no just one, there's no one route to the solution here. I can tell you from our perspective on problems that we have going forward with this is that all of these lease terms will have conditions placed upon them, right? So what is the brightness performance of those illumination systems? Under what environmental conditions are those um, pieces of equipment going to be operated under? How are we going to tie into those systems to make sure that they're being maintained in a 20 degree environment versus a 35 degree environment because laser systems are more uh, susceptible to different areas of degradation based upon environmental variables. Lamps are a little more um, resilient in, in that regard. So there's other questions that we have to address than just the economic model of lease or CapEx. We're happy to provide both, whatever the exhibitor needs. Uh, but there's a whole back end of requirements on the environment that it has to be operated into for the lease conditions to be met that, that requires more thought. Mm. That makes sense. That that makes perfect sense. Um, I suppose, like, my well, with it being cinema, it's going to be it, it would be ridiculous to go for capex as opposed to opex if you weren't going to be looking for a long term sort of solution. Um, but then, I don't. I'm just. I'm just uh, waxing lyrical, as the kids would say. Um, would it? Also depend on maybe what your accounting situation was in terms of whether um, what it's considered. So, so if you're you're Kevin, you might be the right person to ask this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have to pay more if it's like property or equipment or considered an operating mm -hmm. cost because I think with capex uh, it would be considered a property or equipment cost, whereas with opex. So if you if you were not renting the light and you were buying the light then that would be an operating cost yeah i think for us i mean i've just resigned myself to the fact that projectors are now a cost in the way that they weren't before because you know like i, I alluded to my westar 2001 on my century would run forever so therefore the cost of owning owning it went down and down and down in fact to virtually almost nothing apart from servicing here and there but I don't think digital is in that realm at the moment. I don't think, not for us anyway. It's a cost, in, and it will, you know, because to to, I mean, it's, they're not going to last forever in the way that those things did. So I have to buy another one in I don't know five, ten years, 
So I don't think it makes much difference to me one way or the other. But, but would it be an operating a, cost or a property cost? That's the... uh, it, for me, it's a capital cost because I borrow the money and, I, and that's what I do. I pay it back over five years or whatever. So for you, it would be fine to do CapEx, I suppose. Yeah, and, and, and rent the yeah. Buy, it would be yeah. no different. I mean, and, and it would depend on whether what the difference in the cost was as well. You know, I don't, uh, without seeing actual numbers, it would be very difficult to say. But like, like Brian says, it's some different, you know, different strokes for different folks. It's going to work better for some than others. It depends on how much capital they want to outlay. But money, money in the UK, I can't talk for the rest of the world, is fairly cheap at the moment. So actually just leasing the equipment off a leasing company is actually fairly cost effective. So it's not a major issue for us. What I'm a little bit worried about in the new environment is creditworthiness of the uh, sure, sure, yeah, the exhibitor. So once you go into any kind of a lease, then there has to be a meaningful review of, of credit terms, right? Mm, yeah, sure. And that I'm worried sure. about, especially from the commercial lenders, on what kind of rating they're going to put against the exhibition industry mm. moving forward. So in terms of doing... Uh, light leases this is one of the concerns we need to look at in the new business environment yeah yeah i mean yeah we use various i mean i use various leasing companies and they the terms are, are pretty reasonable and uh yeah i think i think it'll just depend the the brave new world that we're coming into could be very different you're absolutely right and that this is my struggle is to I'm trying not to increase my debt. I'm dramatically trying not to increase my debt. So for that very reason, so that when we come out the other end and we need new stuff, I'll be able to go and get it. Yeah. But then I'm one site. So it's very easy for me to say that. Hey, maybe, uh, mm. just throwing this out there, <laughs> maybe we'll have a new VPF system after this. Well, yes. Ah. Who knows? Mm. Out of mm-hmm. necessity. Out no. of absolute necessity, yeah, no, because no. yeah, because of the situation, it'll, it'll the be really interesting to see keen, what happens. Yeah. I suppose. Hmm. No, I can't no. imagine the studios being super keen. No, I think I think the only way we'd ever instigate another VPF, it's just my opinion, um, is if you know the Hollywood decided that they wanted to use LED screens instead of projectors. I hope that never happens. Well, there's yeah, pros and cons, but. Um, yeah, I, I just think that unless there's another fundamental shift, you know, as as, um, as Kevin said earlier on, we we kind of teetered around the edges for cinema for a while after sound. Mm. Um, we'd never really fundamentally changed anything until we went to digital. But changing to LED screens would be another fundamental shift. Yeah, it um, really would. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. I'm too no, no, I don't think anybody <laughs> is personally, but, you know, it's an interesting technology. This might um, be... This might be a question for later, perhaps, but you know, you know the whole situation. And and if we if we look at a perhaps negative, oh, I hate being negative. Um, but if we look at a negative outcome of the current situation, then then would it be um, would it maybe would it be likely that studios might or distributors might want to partner up with exhibitors to ensure that films are played in a theatrical arena? Oh, hang on. So if, if certain exhibitors are having issues um, funding exhibition, but it's in the best interests of other people to ensure that things do get a theatrical release, then is there scope for a partnership further along the road? Well, I don't know. I think that's ultimately that, that, that'll go back to studios owning cinemas, won't it? That's what that'll be. Mm-hmm. 
I hope not. Um, no. I don't know. I guess. I guess we'll see. That's where it started. That's how it started. They owned all the cinemas, so mm. um, but they don't need all the well, cinemas. Something, something came out. Some legal thing came out. Said they couldn't do that anymore. But I believe that was recently changed. Um, yeah. What, like a monopoly thing, or? Yeah. Uh, right. There was a. Is it? can't remember now what it is but it's something to do with antitrust laws and things like that i think in the u.s yeah yeah um but i I believe that's changed recently and there was there was an announcement somewhere i remember saying that 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 was no longer the case but i i I really Mm. don't know the details oh it was uh um okay so it's quite a big subject but it was um the studios owned movie theaters in the u.s so they would put their films out on their own in their own cinemas and this was broken up in the 50s uh, and made illegal in the US. And so that led to the breakup of, or, or at least the diminishing power of the studios. And it changed things quite dramatically. But there was an announcement, and I haven't got it in front of me, a few, about a year ago, where that law seemed to have been tested and found to be no longer relevant. So it could possibly open the door for people like Netflix or whatever to own cinemas. That was the point at the time. Yeah. One thing was the thing about block booking, right? To make it so you mm. could go in and uh, corner the market with your own screens and not yeah. have the competition across town mm. access mm. the same piece of content. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I worry about in this conversation about you know doing another VPF round I don't think there's going to be an appetite for that, first of all. Um, however, if there is an appetite for it, I don't know how you'd be able to have a conversation without um, the release window being part of the discussion. And for that by itself, it would be a, a dangerous a dangerous alley to hide in. Yeah, you're getting into the really murky water, aren't you, at that point? Can you, can you elaborate on that? Well, because of all of the uh, accesses to content that people have now, um, I know that there is some preference uh, to look at shortening the exclusivity of the theatrical run so content can be made available on direct-to-consumer basis through other channels. Uh, So as soon as we start start to have a conversation about uh, VPF round two or whatever we want to call it, um, there would be some discussion about, okay, well, we need to look at what the release window policies are going to be moving forward as well. And I don't think there's going to be a big appetite in, uh, in changing that from the exhibition side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. We well, kind of strayed a little bit from whether we should <laughs> rent or buy in light. As uh, my wine bottle gets emptier, the further we stray. <laughs> Okay, so do we want a human or a robot or nothing? And what I mean by this, before you ask, is um, service, uh, frontline service in cinema. Do we want to just go into a cinema and not see anybody and just buy our ticket automated, even if we've, if we've not got it on our phone? I know we went over that last month. Um, or do we want to buy our popcorn, buy our drinks, buy everything without interaction and just get in the cinema? Or do we want human beings... Or what? Are we talking pre or post COVID? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, given that we've got no other choice, we're talking post COVID. <laughs> so, um, for me, sorry, I'm, obviously I'm the first one to always open my mouth in this situation. <laughs> Let's assume that COVID is sorted and we've all been vaccinated 
and it's fine and it's more about service rather than hygiene okay so i was gonna go with the fact that regardless of the hygiene situation um i'm now working from home um let's say for the record that i live alone um which means that when i do go somewhere i really do want that human interaction because otherwise i am living on my own and then getting to the cinema on my own because i don't have any friends and then at the cinema <laughs> i i don't want to be greeted by a robot or no one because i really need that social interaction um so i'd rather have a human please bob yep i agree i think that's what people want that's what they like about us they like the fact that we know who they are and they like the fact that we talk to them and they like the fact that they can talk to us and I think it's a very important part of How about you, Brian? Do. You're in the States. What's going on over there? Uh, it's not an easy question to answer. So there's there's points pro and con for everything, right? I think post-COVID that there's going to be a, uh, a little bit of sensitivity of people handling the food services stuff. So there's going to be an issue there. I don't know how big of an issue, but we'll see. Long-term, um, people want to see and deal with other people. So... I, I do think that people are going to continue to want that social interaction of being able to see people that uh, you know, think and act the same way that uh, that you do. Yeah, I think so. I do. I went to um, a another cinema chain a few months ago before the day of doom, and um, I didn't interact with a single human person, and I found it a rather anodyne and unpleasant experience, I have to say. But maybe it's because I'm old and warty. Maybe young people don't mind that stuff. That's the thing. So I, I, you know, sometimes it depends on the film I'm going to see and it depends on the mood that I'm in. Um, sometimes I do want to go to the cinema on my own. Actually, I deliberately got a film membership for a certain chain um, so that I would force myself to go to the cinema on my own a little bit because everyone needs their alone time but but going to the cinema alone uh, as an independent person having just one seat amongst many uh, is not necessarily the same as going to the cinema and not seeing anyone or talking to anyone at all hmm. i suppose yeah. like I, yeah. I still you know even when i go to the cinema on my own i get out of my car i walk up the hill i pop in i ask the lovely lady or gent behind the bar for a really big glass of wine uh, and two ice cream sundaes. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I like that bit. I love that bit. That bit's great. Oh, what seats are we delivering these to? Oh, no, it's just one seat. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I love that interaction and I love showing my ticket to someone at the door. Just the whole process to me is, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's, it just, it is it's, important. It's wonderful. Is it cultural? Is it cultural? Is it? I don't think it's cultural. Well, what I mean is territorial, maybe. You know, would, is that a UK thing? Would that work the same in Germany, Spain, Russia? I don't think so. I, no. I think you're. I think you're right. In in that certain areas might be okay with that, but I think um, largely because I've done a lot of test screenings and I've been to a lot of screenings in other countries for my job. So I, I've. You know, I've been there uh, in auditoriums and also in like the lobby. You know, I've had to travel and hand carry the film and make sure everything's nice and secure. So I, I've been in a foyer before one of our screenings, and you, you see how people work. Well, I've, I, well, I say I've been to places. I've only been in Europe, so maybe it's a European thing that we like to have this 
human contact. I'm, I'm not sure about anywhere else, but I suspect America is the same. Well, it's certainly the North. You have the most introverted uh, audiences maybe in the world, but still you can tell that when they're in the, in the audience, they're very quiet when they're watching the movie. But in the foyer, where they're interacting, they're talking to each other, they're very engaged with the environment around them. That's just part of what's being uh, yes. us, human, no matter what Yeah. But by being here, I mean, you know, can you imagine my restaurant? If I just had a series of buttons you pressed and the food would arrive on a track or something, that wouldn't work, would it? That'd be rubbish. If I wanted to do that, it goes you, I don't know, somewhere that's uh, food out of a vending machine. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's it's all part of the part of the experience. And particularly if you go to the same cinema um, regularly, then the fact that people know you and you're a member there and all that stuff gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. And who doesn't like a warm, fuzzy feeling? Anywhere, really. Especially inside. <laughs> Especially inside. Yeah. So, 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 just out, you know, just to sort of narrow it down a little bit. So, when you're going to buy your um, your ice cream or whatever it is you're buying to watch a film with, um, whether it's wine ice cream or popcorn or whatever it is. Do you want that to be served by a human being, or would yes, you rather you do? But um, or would you yeah. rather go to a like a warming? Um, I don't know a warming thing. I don't know what you call them. Um, <laughs> a, a warming, warming thing. It's like, <laughs> a, it's like, like a, a fridge, like a toasty oven with popcorn inside. No, it's like a it's like a it's like a fridge, but it keeps it warm instead of cold. Yeah, um, like a, a toasty oven that keeps yeah. things warm inside. No, but it, it's literally like a fridge with a glass door and you open and there's popcorn inside and you go in and you say, right, I'll have one of those. And you pick it up <laughs> and you take it to someone and you say, right, this is what I want, like a supermarket, yeah? And you pay for it at the end like a supermarket because there are definitely places in Europe that I've seen that do that and that's what they prefer. They don't have it serve to them they grab all their stuff they go to the checkout and then they buy it all at once i think they call it an oven ridge an oven ridge yeah which is hybrid between oven and fridge an oven ridge an oven ridge i'm definitely making that up or is it a froven oh it could be a froven i do like a froven yeah froven's good the only way i'd want a robot to be uh serving me is if it was like a robot like a comedy robot going, here is your popcorn. So we would be happy with robots if they were um, yeah, comedy no- robots. novelty comedy robots. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. I, I actually agree with yeah. that, yeah. But you know, to, to your point, though, Mike, some of these places that have like the pre, pre-popcorn on a shelf that you reach it and grab and take to the front counter, I wonder in post-COVID if that's – I actually wouldn't like. I don't want to have. I don't want to touch a popcorn that somebody else might have just uh, brushed up against with their sweaty mm-hmm. palm. I, I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, I don't think. I don't think that those people are going to go to the cinema. I, I think that the the people obviously we're going to uh, have some sort of hygiene standards and whatnot. But I think um, that the people you're talking about there are the people that won't go anywhere. They're not going to have any fun in their lives and they're going to die cold and alone. I don't know. I think I think you can still go to the cinema but maybe take less risks. Um, yeah. You know. And... Well, like, don't watch a Transformers movie. Like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe we should go on to the next one. We've heard enough of Frovens. Um... 
Should there be a cinema rating scheme like the hygiene rating on restaurants, takeout gaffes, and who would fund it? Mark, are you referring to like an overall grade of the cinema, its operations, its quality of presentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or yeah. specifically about food? Uh, overall? Yeah, because cinema, cinemas, as far as I'm aware, do have hygiene ratings from a, from a food perspective. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen quite a few cinemas with those green stickers on that say I have a high, this as a hygiene regime of five um, and things like that. But uh, I'm, I'm more talking about um, the, the standard of presentation and the, the, I suppose you could roll in everything else, things like comfort level and, mm. um, you know, the, the, the general experience of a cinema. I think we did have this one time before the Kodak screen check. Does anybody yeah. remember that? Yeah. yeah. Which didn't last long. <laughs> no. No, I mean I never I never uh, actually had one of those on on a cinema I was in charge of because we didn't use it. Uh we did a, an internal audit, but uh from what I can gather and I saw it, I think there's a lot of people a lot of um very, very strict rules and it marked you down on a lot of things that were actually nothing to do with the cinema, it was just the way it was built. Well, I think a lot of very powerful and influential or very important cinemas failed and that, so it was quickly sat on. Mm. I think that's what happened. So Yeah. But I don't know that for sure. No, I don't know. I don't think it's a bad idea, but who's going to police it? Who's going to even care? You know, you're going to put a thing outside the door going, we're great. I don't know. I, difficult to say. I mean, actually, Brian, if you were at THX, which was a, an attempt, wasn't it, to, 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 to bring standards into cinema, but not everybody, um, you know, thought it was a good idea to adhere to it, really. That was the, the one question on THX was um, it wasn't necessarily that people didn't like the idea of having quality around the aspects of presentation and having that work be done to maintain a certain aspect of quality. As with all things, it's the revenue model and the business model. Behind it. So you still have to be able to pay for the service of going in to make sure everything is at a, some standard level of quality, right? And that's a very <laughs> difficult business model to uh, to go into it with, with cinemas, right? It's um, yeah. it's always been a traditional struggle, unless they're personally invested in it, which I know from the standpoint of an exhibitor, they're all invested in making sure that the quality is as best as it can be, but some more than others, but having a unifying force that rates and maintains that quality level um, has to be monetized to make a business out of, and that part's mm. very difficult. Mm. So just yeah. throwing this out here, like uh, this is completely separate, but maybe we can get some links. Um, when I was at university, I used to be a mystery shopper. And it meant that you went... So I, I went to cinemas, I went to theatres, I went to shops, whatever. Like, even supermarkets, right? And you had... Uh, so the mystery shopper would be given like this list of things that they need to ask or do. And then you would rate them at the end. Uh, well, actually, we do that. We we do that. We put we we pay somebody to come to our cinema secretly uh, once a month. Yeah, you haven't paid me in a while, you know. <laughs> and they come hey, to the you, restaurant. Can you they pay come... me to do that? And I'll, I can uh... pay you to do that. Yeah. But it's actually a really useful process because um, it makes you feel smug about the stuff you're doing well, and it helps you 
understand what you're not doing well. Absolutely, so, my friend. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful idea. That's actually a really good, really good point because whenever you mention things like checks or, you know, we're going to come up and check on you, make sure you're doing a good experience, um, it's always kind of, well, not always, but some people will throw it down on the ground and say, no, we don't want to do that because it's, you know, it, it's, 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 it puts more stress on us. And well, we're no. really, really, but, well, but what it does like is a normal person. No, exactly. But what it's doing is it really celebrates the people who are doing a great job. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, it, and it's yeah. about celebrating the successes rather than pointing fingers at the failures. Yeah. 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 And, no, and, and, and these sorts of checks are always from the eye of the public as well. So they're not the I-know-it-all mm. technical mm. folk. Mm. Um, so it's the people that are there to have a good time. And it's the whole experience. And I think that's really what it's all about. It's not about having someone being audited on their technical ability. It's about the cinema being audited on their experience-giving yeah. situation. No, mm. I, can, I, I can highly recommend it as a process because um, it also enables you to talk to staff and say, you did a really good job there. And it also gives you backup with stuff that needs to be addressed. You know, it's not just you getting up in the morning, the wrong side of the bed and being grumpy about it. You've actually got this report that says, well, you know, you shouldn't have, um, you know, had a runny nose or a whatever. And, um, or called that customer an arse. <laughs> well, I sincerely hope that does not happen in your cinema. Well, only um, when I'm on the, the, the door, yeah. But no, and like uh, the the sort of like guest uh, shopping situation I used to be in, like I used to have to record names. If they had name tags, I'd have to remember the name and I'd write that down. Mm, and yeah. then I'd give that person very positive feedback. And it's not like you're handing out a slip to some random passer-goer saying, how did I do? Someone is actually there in your cinema. Yeah, I would imagine this is done by all major corporations, isn't it? Yeah, I was just, uh, no, I think, I think it probably is. You know, a, a lot of people use it as a as a yardstick, really, to be able yeah. to make improvements or or deal with things. Yeah. Uh, and we do. We, we you know, there are definitely lots of cinema chains out there that do that kind of thing. Well, I I just like to say that I am still part of that organisation. Yeah. I haven't worked for them for a little while, but I have not been asked to do a cinema in a very long time. Oh, right. Okay. Right. right. That's interesting. Um, but um, the one thing I did learn when we started this a few years ago was that, um, and it never would never occurred to me was to send somebody to your opposition and get a report on that. That never occurred to me. That was a thing. So uh, I thought that was quite, yeah, yeah, quite quite interesting idea. Yeah, there's this whole sort of holding your cards to your chest and looking to the sides uh, to see, you know, are you the same as your competitors or, or yeah. are you um, better or slightly worse or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, to be honest, I'm trying to think of, you know, it, it, this gets mentioned at the Unix Cinema Days, pretty much every year, um, you know, should we have some form of, you know, test that says this cinema's sound and projection is fine and we've given it a big tick or actually it's not that great or it's a star rating or, or whatever. I can't see how that would work personally. I feel like there would be, um, that might be beneficial for people that are earning lots of money i think it might be really terrible for people that are independents um and just doing their best and providing a good enough standard in their area why did you bring this up mike really i mean honestly <laughs> well i brought it up because people bring it up at the unique cinema days quite often and i was curious as to what you thought 
And who would who's going to pay for it as well? Well, thing. yeah, that is a big one. Realistically, no one does anybody want to run the risk of being told you're not very good. Well, no, no, publicly. Welcome to my entire life. Yeah, <laughs> no one would be told they're not very good. No, well, there's a difference between being told, as Kevin's point, which is why you know he doesn't publish his findings. Uh, well, not the only reason, but <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Kevin is perfectly. It's information. Out of- it's information you want to know because you want to know the areas you need to put right, but you don't want to make it public. I don't know how it is in America. Perhaps Brian can chime in afterwards. If I know it's a good cinema and I think it's a good cinema, I'm going to go to the cinema. I'm not going to be put off by a bad rating of cinema because I know that I know more than most people that have rated that cinema. So it's like a film, he gets a one-star review, but you don't care because you like it anyway. So Yeah. 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 How about you, Brian? Like, How is it in the U.S.? A lot of people go off of the, the map applications on their phones, right? If they have a five-star, then they'll, they'll consider it. But we're all creatures of habit. So I have my favorite cinema just based on the overall experience, and uh, it's, it's based upon convenience for me. Right? It's in L.A., so it's a wide space with lots of options. Uh, but I don't want to stick in traffic very long. I want to go through the best experience I can get that's convenient for me and my family. So it's my yeah. personal rating system that I pay attention to the most. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. When you've got a wide choice, I think it depends on the film, your circumstance, whether you're going on your own, whether you're going with your family, whether you're going with a date or your wife or it's date night or whatever. A more useful thing might be one of the cinema um, organizations, be that the UKCA or NATO in the US or whatever, uh, offering that as a service will be a secret shopper and will come along and will, you know, that, that may actually be more useful to you than a, than, a, than a public rating, you know, an actual service where professional people will maybe rate your equipment, you know, your, your presentation. But actually, in the end, maybe that's no good either because it's the average punter that comes along that's going to judge your theatre. Not, 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 not a professional sound mixer or a whatever. Which is why I love that thing that I was part of back in those days when I was a youth. Um, I loved it. I loved it because, and that was like I, I was also a projectionist at the time, so I wasn't really just your average, average Joe. But I used to go to the other cinema chains and be able to judge them, and I could judge them correctly in as far as my knowledge would allow, hmm. um, and I could give all of the good comments. And now if I go to a cinema, um, so I went to a cinema about, well, when I was allowed to go, about six months ago, and um, they had some DMD chip issues, and I told Ooh. them about that at, ah. at the front desk, and they were like, what? Huh? <laughs> what? Whereas if it had been a secret no. shopper situation and I just written it all down in a report, it would have gone to the right person. Uh well I don't think a secret shopper is gonna come up with DMD, are they? I don't Oh yeah, no, no, you mean if if you knew that and you knew that it was yeah. gonna get to the right person, then that would be more useful. Yeah, yeah so so I told the people that I thought it might, you know, you know, I, hmm. I was like, You're you're the only people here, so you must have some sort of idea. And they didn't, yeah. and it was yeah. quite disappointing. Out, and you're I, not necessarily going to tell the YTS person out the front, and it's going to get to the. Mm. Get to the yeah, I did, I did that once. I went, I went in to watch a film, and there were there must have been dust or something in the prism. And I came out, and I told them that um, they had dust in the prism, and I just made myself look like a right cock. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really bad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was just. 
why are you saying to me? I have no clue what you're saying to me. <laughs> no, I've had that experience many times. Uh, the usual one is your lamp's on the blink, mate. It needs changing because it's like it's vibrating and you know oscillating like mad. You really need to get someone to change that lamp in screen five. They look at you like you're from Mars. Brian, how often do you tell people they're rubbish? <laughs> uh, when they play a Woody Allen film, mostly. <laughs> well, that won't that won't be happening again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, if they show on a Christie projector, is that okay then? No, that's Woody Allen. It's pretty much universal. No equipment's going to help in those movies. It's just not going to. So, um, what's the consensus then? Yes or no? I don't know. I can't remember what we were talking about. Oh, uh... <laughs> we should we should not have them unless they no. are. It needs to be a universal thing. And 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 to be honest, if it was a universal thing, it would then be overridden by local law. So I think I think I think maybe as an industry, we could come up with a secret shopper thing, which would be far more useful to people. Well, we could do a DCI compliance situation yeah, or a SIMTE secret shopper program. There you go. Can I ask you a question, though, um, in all seriousness? I don't want any names for obvious reasons, but have you actively avoided going to a particular cinema because you know it's... Sh- wrote, oh, yeah. Sh- yes, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah you have. Yeah. Brian? Oh, absolutely, without doubt. Yeah. Hmm. That's the thing. I think some of these things figure out uh, themselves just in the process of, if you just look at the box office returns, you can yeah. tell which theaters are not great experiences. Is it not a question of, um, you know, a bit like fast food and restaurants? You go, you know, it's not that great for you, but it was convenient at the time, and you're not necessarily proud of it. But you know, it was it was there, and it was fine. It was in front of you. So personally, I'm not I'm not like that with cinemas. All the research shows that the number one choice of which cinema you go to for the public is convenience. Mm. It's my nearest cinema. Mm. All the research shows that. I haven't got anything to back me up, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Apart from all the research. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, I think all the research shows that. that that's the number. I mean, there are many factors, but the overriding factor is, I think it was number one was where it is, and the number two was what time it's on. Yeah. And everything else comes behind that. Free parking. Yeah, possibly. Well, the thing is, you might only have one cinema within, you know, a reasonable distance from your house. You've yeah, got no I, choice. I'm, I am so fortunate to have so many, but they are terrible and considerate. In, in when I consider them against the one that I do go to. So, okay, let's go on to COVID nineteen then. So, general discussion on equipment issues related to COVID restart. Um, Kevin. Yes. Do you live in your cinema building? Uh, fortunately, no. Uh, I live quite close to it, but I don't live in it. No. Right, okay. So, um, so I go down there and um, I do work f- um, from there uh, some days. Yeah, I just wasn't allowed, I believe. I, I just no. wasn't sure what kind of a building it was. I didn't, no, I didn't no, know no, no, whether, no. I didn't know whether going to your cinema meant going downstairs or uh, no, actually going to a building. About a mile that way. And, uh, but I do, yes, I mean, I'm just running, running all the kit about once a week. Right. There's not much else I can do really, is there? Uh, no. I don't know how you guys are managing it at Odeon. That must be quite, are you sending people in or what are you doing? Uh, it, yeah, generally, yeah, broadly. Um, 
you know, lots of different countries, lots of different government regulations uh, mean different working patterns and whatnot. So, um, but generally, yes, they're going in uh, once or twice a week to to, to make sure it's not flooded <laughs> um, and doing other yeah, checks and things that. like that. So, but I mean, I, I, is it true about? I mean, is the battery thing a thing? I mean, is that an actual thing? Yeah. Right? That yeah. Thing? I don't know. yeah i think i think it probably is i mean we've been working on uh a tech the thing is we don't have any we don't have any content that has a kdm anymore i mean i don't know if you know i don't know if you know of a film out there that's got a particularly long kdm you can use but we really need encrypted content to be able to test um um why don't you just uh talk to me well, I spoke to somebody, I spoke to MPS, actually, and they very helpfully uh, helped out. Some encrypted content came down the line this week, I believe. Right. Yeah, there are various people doing some, some stuff. Um, but, you know, what I'm trying to get to is, you know, is there a potential problem? Do we need to make sure that we test it regularly? Um, uh, you know, maybe Brian can help out on this. Uh, I don't know. Um, because there's obviously different things as well, whether you've got a, a completely external server, whether you've got an IMB, whether you've got an IMS that is dependent on the projector being booted up to keep power and whether that's going to keep the batteries alive or what. Absolutely, please, please go out and power on the equipment the sooner rather than later. Because, um, you know, everything ages at different rates and depending upon how old your IMB is, if you don't have it turned on or... Uh, I know in some cases in Eastern Europe, for example, they've actually in, enforced the stay-at-home rules by turning off powers to shopping malls. So All the right. sooner we can get an idea of, of what failures are being exhibited, the more we're going to be able to prepare for it. And yes, there will be problems. We're just trying to ascertain how big the problem is going to be. Yeah, that's 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 where we're looking at, really. You know, we're we're trying to um, predict uh, and check as much as we possibly can. So, uh, forgive me. Is there an issue then between running uh, unencrypted and encrypted content? Is there? Could there potentially be? You know, if I just run adverts for half an hour, mm-hmm. could that potentially show me that, uh, or not show me that there could be an issue with encrypted content? Yeah, because you've got two cases where if batteries die, those batteries actually do the marriage between the projector and an IMB. So right. if you can't marry the projector, then in some cases you can't even play unencrypted content. Um, yeah. So it's the encryption certificates. If they die, if they fail, then I think, I mean, this could be equipment dependent. Uh, I think this means that you could play standard content, but you can't play encrypted content, which is why the best test is to play some encrypted content, because if it plays, it's Well, in that case, something needs to be done about that. Pretty sharpish, I would suggest. Well, we're always trying to get as many spare parts for the uh, media blocks and for things like projector interface boards all ready to go so that when these things do happen, we can be well prepared. Um, I, I just have a feeling that no matter what I do, we probably will not be as prepared as we need to of be. Of course we won't. Of course yeah. we won't. But we can try our best. Yes, yeah, we can try our best. It would just be an awful shame as, as if everything goes well and the industry comes back alive and in summertime we get... Lots of great movies that aren't horrible, and people flock back to the cinemas. Uh, we have problems with equipment that can't play the content. That would be yeah. a travesty. Yeah. So, you know, as, as I said, Motion Picture Solutions have been very, very, very helpful. 
they've created this very small, very simple test encrypted piece of content. You can get KDMs for it. Um, mm. we, we're testing it. We haven't actually tested it yet, but we're testing it hopefully this week. Uh, and, you know, if we've got a major problem, then we'll obviously let the industry know. Um, if we've not, then we'll also let the industry know because it, nobody knows. I mean, everything should be fine if people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing like actually doing a proper test. And if if we can understand what that does and we can prove that it's fine or it's not, then it's good to know early so that not only we can react quickly, but we can also let, you know, Christy, Dolby, uh, you know, alchemy, everybody uh, to know, you know what, guys, we've got a major problem here. We need to make sure you've got enough stock. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've come to the end. Thank you very I much. I think so. we have the absolute end. Yeah. Hey, thank you guys again for the honor. So thank you very much, everybody. I've really enjoyed being with you as ever. Once again, I'd just like to reiterate that there is currently a six-month free community membership on offer um, in place to get over to the CT website and jump right in. And just remember, thank God I'm me.